Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and its way is easy, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you that you would take these words that are written in our Bibles, on our laps, in ink, and uh, transfer them into our hearts. God, that you would breathe life into them, that we would not just have our minds flooded with more info. God, that's the last thing that the American church needs is just simply more info. What we need is revelation. We need revelation that shows us how great you are. We need revelation that causes that is so great that it actually causes us to be distracted from the things that we have our hands so tightly gripped on today that are actually worthless. Things that we have, have our hands gripped upon today that are actually rusting and being stolen and being broken. The very things that you, Jesus says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on this earth, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. God, I pray that you would help us to get a vision of you, you today, a revelation of who you are that's so great that we would gladly let go of anything, even our very lives, to obtain the greatest treasure, which is you. You've given us yourself, and you call us to life. God, I pray today you would allow us, help us to hear that message and respond properly. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Basically, as we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that we've seen is Jesus has been teaching. It's a monologue, right, where he's gathered together this large group of people. He's talking to them about uh, the kingdom of God, which, you know, unless you're familiar with that phrase, it can just be a little bit more Christianese added to your, uh, your vocabulary of already an exhaustive list of Christianese. So I want to try to take a real quick moment and understand, kind of uh, unpack for you a little bit what the kingdom of God is. Basically, in a nutshell, the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about and the way that Jews would have understood the kingdom of God is God's domain, God's authority, God's power. When God shows up, God exercises his authority, his power, his greatness, his justice, and things happen, things change, things are affected. And the Jews would have recognized that as basically being God exercising his kingdom power or his kingdom domain. One of the best examples of this in the Old Testament was at the time of the... Uh, Parting of the Red Sea, uh, the Passover when Pharaoh was overthrown. The children of Israel made their way through the Red Sea that was parted. They walked on dry ground. Afterwards, God closed the Red Sea. It destroyed the entire uh, army of Pharaoh. And God, by one uh, major miraculous uh, of, um, you know, thing that had happened, that what had taken place within that very moment, God set the people free from the bondage of Pharaoh. That was a radical movement of God. And the Jews would have viewed that as God flexing muscle, right? Or maybe in another term, biblical term, that's God's kingdom coming upon the scenario. God's kingdom coming upon the world. Another example might be in the New Testament when Jesus, uh, say for example, is on a boat. He's on a, he's on a little uh, fishing ship with a handful of his disciples. He's, ta- he's taking a nap. He's sleeping. And there's a bad storm that basically arises. And his disciples are freaking out. They're scared. They think they're going to die. And all of a sudden they cry out to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, help us, save us. All of a sudden Jesus basically commands the wind to stop. 
and all of a sudden the storm stops and the wind uh, ceases and the seas become calm. That's another example of Jesus exercising authority over things which normally we just don't have any control over. We don't have any ability. Others example, other examples might arise throughout the New Testament. For example, when Jesus might open somebody's eyes that are blinded or heals leprosy or somebody uh, is deaf, Jesus opens their ears. All these are examples which we would typically look at and say those are impossible. We can't do anything about that. There's no way we can part a Red Sea. There's no way deaf people can hear. There's no way blind eyes can see. There's no way leprous skin can be healed. There's no way a person who has a demon in them can be whole again. And we can, there's no way a dead person can actually rise again from the dead. And that's true. That's absolutely true. Until God shows up. Until God shows up. And that concept of God showing up is oftentimes known or understood by the Jews as being God's kingdom, God's power, God's authority, God flipping switches that we don't even know about, and all of a sudden things change. Things change. Uh, one of the best examples of this is in the New Testament. For example, Paul writes about it with regard to salvation. God shows up and he does the impossible, and he's done it in some of your lives. He's taken hearts that have known about God, but maybe for some reason have never really responded to God. I'll give you the example of myself. I was uh, almost 16 years old, I was uh, just about uh, 16, and late 15s, and I, I remember my parents had just, that, that would be right, right? So 15 comes before 16, I don't know why I explained that, but, um, but I, I remember my parents had just barely gotten married, and right when they got, right, uh, my stepmom, and when they had gotten married, we basically were going to two different churches, I was brought up Catholic, so I would, we would go to Catholic Mass first, and then we would go to another church down in Orange County second, so basically... Our whole family was drug all over around Orange County to go to two different church services, which we absolutely abhorred, all right? We hated that. But I remember at this particular Sunday, I don't remember the day, I don't know anything else other than the fact that it was in our 1984 brown uh, Volkswagen van again. I don't think there's anything spiritual about Volkswagen van again unless they're being de- demonically oppressed. And we were sitting in this Volkswagen van again in the Catholic parking lot, the Catholic church parking lot, I was just having dialogue with my stepmom. I think we were literally just killing time waiting for Mass to start so we can go in. And as we're talking, uh, all of a sudden she said, so I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I'd known about God. I'd been raised up in a family that taught me about God uh, as a Catholic. I went to confirmation. I did all the things that I was supposed to have done as a Catholic. If you were to ask me, do you believe in God? My answer would be yes. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Who's Jesus? Jesus is God's son. I would have all the right answers. But what had happened was, for me personally, I didn't know God. I didn't know Jesus. I had known about God, but I never really knew God. And so at that particular point, in that van again, at whatever time of day it was, my stepmom said something to me that basically I responded by just simply saying, now wait a minute, are you saying that God actually wants to forgive me of my sin, take away my offense, and give me a life? She's like, yeah, that's it. And for my stepmom, I don't think she understood what was happening, but in my heart... In my heart, at that moment, it's like a light went on. It's like a light had just completely turned on. I don't know how else to describe it other than the fact that God, in that instant, in that moment, did something that was impossible by myself, impossible for my stepmom. He opened my eyes that had been blind. I had known about God, but I never knew God. But in that instant, a miracle took place in a 1984 Volkswagen van again in the parking lot of a Catholic church. My eyes were open. I saw God. 
not literally, but in a, in, a, in, a, in a sense where I knew that my sins have been forgiven. I knew that even though I had offended God because of the fact that I've committed sins, as well as because of the fact I, I, there are things I omitted, things I did, things I didn't do that I should have done, that God had forgiven me at that moment. That is a perfect example of the kingdom of God coming. Doing something that I had no ability to do in and of myself. But God did it. That's, that's the idea. That's the concept. So Jesus comes in the Sermon on the Mount, and he preaches this message that's about the kingdom of God. What it looks like when it comes. What happens when it comes. What changes when it comes. And he begins to sort of go through this entire passage. And in summary, what he wants to do is he really wants for his hearers to see that true fulfillment of the life of God looks like this. And then he speaks. That's everything that Jesus is going to say. This is what the fulfillment of the life or the power or the authority of God looks like. So if you're ever kind of wondering, what does a life look like that is submitted to the authority of God, that lives like God? Sermon on the Mount is a very good example of that. Or if you want a better example, just look at Jesus. Everything that Jesus does is what the life of a believer, somebody who follows Jesus, begins to look like. Now, obviously, we're going to fail. We're not going to look exactly like that. But inside of us, our hearts will begin to change. Rather than wanting to murder people, there's something that changes. Where now we actually begin to sort of want to love people. I mean, I remember before I was a Christian, the thought of going to a prayer meeting was hideous. After I became a Christian, I'm like, I'm kind of into this. This is kind of cool. I remember going to a Bible study, and they actually started singing. At first I thought Christians looked like freaks because they had their eyes open and they were raising their hand. I walked in. I kid you not, the first time I ever walked into a church, into a church service is my high school group. And I, all these kids were singing. They had their hands raised. I'm like, what are you looking at? You know, it was to, uh, totally foreign to me. I thought they looked really weird. But what had happened was after my eyes were open and God did this work in my life of saving me, I now began to actually just want to sing to God. It began to make sense to me why people raise their hands. It's kind of like a little child does to his daddy. When a kid's like two years old, it goes running up to daddy. And he's like this, daddy. You know, that's the idea. It's like, I love God. And he's like my daddy. He's like my spiritual daddy. And that's what was going on or changing it in my heart. Jesus would liken it to the kingdom of God. God's authority, God's reign is coming. He's changing people's hearts. Something that you and I cannot do. We have the, we're, at a, we're unable to do it ourselves, and he sets us free from sin and from defilement and from other types of bondages that we are enabled to set our, ourselves free from. In just the same way that children of Israel could not will themselves out of Egypt, they needed a deliverer. We cannot will ourselves into God's kingdom freed from sin. We need a deliverer. That's what Jesus does. That's, in short, the miracle of God's kingdom coming. Jesus comes preaching this message, and his message is basically this. Look, God's here. He wants to set you free. He wants to bring you to life. That's, in summary, what the Sermon on the Mount is about. We jump in now. Some of you are like, are we ever going to get to the passage? Yes, we are. Here we go. Let's jump in. Jesus begins, and the very first verse that we're going to take a look at is John chapter 12. He says this, so whatever you wish, 
that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So what's going to happen here is that there is actually a break between verse 12 and verse 13. Verse 12 is basically the summary of everything that Jesus has been saying up until this point in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse uh, 13 uh, is basically Jesus's summary, or you know, or final statements, if you would. It's kind of like when a preacher's like, okay, finally, here's what I'm going to say, right? It's a little bit sketchy sometimes when a preacher's like, finally, you, already, you always know that there might be like four or five finallys, right? You're like, I thought you said like the third finally ago that you were done. Yes, I, I am about done. I only have about one finally left to go. And that's kind of what Jesus is like, okay, finally, and he gives us four finallys. And we'll look at those in just a moment here. But what he does at this particular verse, verse 12, is he summarizes everything that he set up up until this point. Um, we typically call this, we're more familiar with this particular passage as being the golden rule. The reason why it was called the golden rule is because around the third uh, century, there's a guy by the name of Alexander uh, Severus. Uh, he was one of the Roman emperors, and he basically uh, was influenced by this particular passage. Maybe there were some Christians that had communicated the gospel to him and shared this particular verse with him, but he liked it so much, thought, yeah, this works for my kingdom. I mean, if everybody in my kingdom treated each other like this, kind of have a good kingdom. So even this secular-minded guy thought it was a good idea. So he basically carved it into his castle walls and over his throne, and then uh, laid it in gold. Uh, hence the phrase, the golden rule. So what had happened was, this particular verse is a summary of what Jesus is about to say. So again, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. In this is the law and the prophets. The word so that Jesus starts with, when he says so, the question we've got to ask is what's he referring to? Is he referring to the so of what's about to follow, or is he referring to the so of what has just transpired, or what has just happened? If you look at the last verse, just before verse 12, verse 11, he says this, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your fathers in heaven give good gifts to you? And then he says, so. Is that what he's referring to? I don't think that's exactly what Jesus is referring to. In fact, one of the reasons why, or one of the clues I would give you why I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to, is because Jesus was Jewish, and obviously, but Jesus also wrote or spoke probably, or was familiar with different types of Hebraic literature. And so Jesus actually, within the Greek language here, uh, says something that's very interesting. Uh, he uses what most scholars call a, an inclusio, all right? You guys want to say inclusio? Say inclusio, all right? You came here this morning because you wanted to learn a big word, all right? Now you got a big word, uh, and you're like, my pastor's really smart. No, he's just got expensive Bible software. And the word inclusio literally means this. Um, what, what it is, it's actually a literary concept or literary uh, phrase that's used, and they're kind of like bookends. And you'll see this in a lot of historical Hebraic literature. What I mean by this is they'll take two different phrases that are very similar, very similar, and they'll kind of use them like bookends. I'll give you a couple examples of this in just a moment. But what they'll do, their purpose for this is to say the phrase first and then say the phrase a little bit later in the poem or in the writing. And then everything in between is meant to support uh, the two bookends. Is that making sense so far? I'll give you a couple examples of this. So the next slide You'll see one of the uh, Old Testament examples of this, taken out of the book of Jeremiah. In fact, scholars believe that there's a lot of inclusios found in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Psalms is full of them. Uh, a lot of Hebraic literature has this type of uh, literary component. I'll give you an example of what it sounds like. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 10 says this, I have set you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms. And then he says, to pluck up, to break down, 
to destroy, to overthrow, and to build and plant. All right? So that's what, the way Jeremiah starts this entire great prophecy. Uh, he comes to some conclusions later on, about 24 chapters later in verse 6, he says this, I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down, and I will plant them and not uproot them. So actually, in the Hebrew, the verses are way more connected than they might be in the English. But what you'll find are some similarities. First, God says to overthrow, to build up, to plant. And then verse uh, 6 of verse, uh, chapter 24, he says, And I won't tear them down, and I will plant them, and I will not uproot them. So this is what scholars would uh, refer to as sort of inclusio. And everything in between has to do with sort of this movement uh, that transpires or takes place. And in this particular case... God gives Jeremiah this prophecy. And you can read on your own, kind of figure out what's happening there. But this is a good example. One other example I'll show you is this. Psalm 118, probably a more clear one. Uh, verse 1, and then the very last verse, which is verse 29. It reads, it's, in fact, it's the exact same verse that says this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. So, basically three phrases. Give thanks to the Lord. Second one, he's good. Third, his steadfast love endures forever. Um, That's verse 1, and then the very last verse of the entire psalm. So, take a guess. What do you think the rest of the psalm talks about? It's all about God's goodness. It's about God's love. It's about how his mercy and love endures forever. Is it the exact same verses? No. But they all support this. This is a good example of kind of an inclusio. And back in the book of Matthew, what we'll find, that Jesus is basically trying to communicate an idea that has to do with the law and the prophets. This is really important. All right? Some of you are like, like, okay, how? I'll tell you how. The law and the prophets that Jesus is talking about. So if you go in, back in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Turn back to real quick. Matthew chapter 5. Look at about verse 17. It says this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All right? And then basically Jesus finishes this little section here in verse 20. He says, For I tell you that unless unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's our phrase, kingdom of heaven. But what's very important to note that Jesus says there in chapter 5, that he also reiterates in chapter 7 that we just read, is something about the law and the prophets. Okay, So I, I want you to focus on this for just a brief moment so you can understand what's happening here. The point that Jesus is trying to make is that he's trying to answer his critics in one way. He's basically trying to say, look, I'm not come, I'm not here to destroy Moses. I'm not here to start a new religion. I'm not here to overthrow Judaism. You've got to understand this. Jesus is very clear here. Because sometimes people might look at the Bible and be like, ah, oh, the Old Testament. It's old because it's antiquated. It doesn't need to be used anymore. It's old because it's bad. It's old because it's unnecessary anymore. Jesus' whole point would be to combat that, to say, no, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets. But his whole point is that I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And then he goes on to say, in that little section, so that your righteousness would exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. So real quick, hopefully this will help bring some uh, connection in your minds. The scribes and the Pharisees was the, were the religious people of the day. And they were basically going around communicating to the people what the righteous standards were that God expected or that God demanded. 
Now, the scribes and Pharisees were really righteous people. I mean, these were people that literally tithed out of their, out of their flower garden. I mean, it's just like if they had a flower that produced seed, sunflower seeds, they're like, okay, I, I brought in 10 trillion sunflower seeds today. I gotta give 10% of that. They would go through and ton, or, or count these and give 10% of everything they had. I mean, think about it. If you lived in that day and you heard somebody say, hey, your righteousness has to exceed the righteousness of scribes and Pharisees, how would you feel? Pretty much undone. Right? You'd be like, are there any other world religions that I can choose? You know what I'm saying? I mean, you would, you would not look at Judaism as a viable option. You'd feel really defeated. Okay, that's the point I'm trying to make. But Jesus says this interesting statement. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that or goes beyond that or goes further than that of the scribes and Pharisees, then you won't know anything about the kingdom of God. So the best way that scholars have tried to understand what Jesus is trying to say is he's saying that God is actually looking for a different type of righteousness other than what was portrayed and taught and communicated and exemplified than by your religious leaders. That's what he's saying. There's a different way to be human. There's a different way to be God's people. There's a different way to be in relationship with God than what you have been taught. All right? Some of you have been brought up in different types of religions or different types of backgrounds that maybe have not clearly represented God. The Christian church is very good at going generationally. What I mean by that is God tends to show up and do great things in a generation. Things happen there. People are saved. People come to know God. Sin is overcome. People's lives are changed. Uh, Those people end up finding somebody within the church. They get married. They've got kids. And now you've got a new generation that's being raised up. And this new generation may not know God. By the time they get older and they start their own churches and do their own things, they have literally lived off of the faith of mom and dad. Or off of the faith of grandma and grandpa. In other words, faith does not belong to them. So oftentimes what God does is God revives the church. He gives fresh insight, new ways to, for us to understand how to live, how to follow God through Jesus not just according to old standards. Jesus would use an example like this. Um, talking about putting wine in brand new wineskins. And he basically makes the correlation by saying, the religious system of the scribes and the pharisaical system today is like an old wineskin. And I'm bringing new wine. I'm bringing new wine. And I want to do something new in your lives to make and create and bring about a relationship with God that's vibrant. That's real, that's true, that's not lived at a proxy through somebody else. But that is your relationship with your creator God. That's what he's saying. And so what Jesus is going to communicate through the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is he's basically going to say, this is how God wants to have a relationship with you. And they'll give all these examples. Some of the examples would be, they'll say stuff like this, you've heard it said before, if your neighbor does something against you, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. If he knocks out your tooth, go knock out his tooth. But Jesus says, I got a better way for you to live. How about you love him? How about you good do, do good to those who hurt you? Do something different. Live a different way. If you're prone to going around trying to make good on your word by constantly swearing oaths, if you're the type of person that is so un 
believable, not in the good, unbelievable sense, you know? You're like, dude, I'm so unbelievable. Like, <laughs> I'm talking the negative unbelievable, right? The, the one that really is, you, you can't be believed because you never tell the truth. If you're that person, you're always going around, you're like, I swear to you, I'm telling the truth. She's like, you know, the better way to live, just tell the truth. Stop lying. Stop fabricating things. Stop blowing things out of proportion. Just tell the truth. Be trustworthy. Um, if you're the person that's always carrying a grudge, you know, somebody does something against you, they cross you. His whole point is don't fight back. Don't retaliate with the same ways in which they retaliate against you. Live differently. Do life differently. Do it in a way that's very reminiscent of me, is what Jesus would say. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm not going to fight back. People despise me, and I'll give my life for them. People will use me, and I will pray for them. People will abuse me, and I will allow my blood to be shed for them. People will mock me, and I won't say anything back. Instead, I'll trust my Father. I'll trust that God knows what's best, and I'll trust myself to him. That's what Jesus calls us to. And in some total, he basically says, this is a new righteousness. This is the righteousness that was actually intended from the law from the very beginning. This is how God originally intended for us to live. How did he convey this? How did he communicate this? The Bible. Believe it or not, the Bible was always viewed by the Jews as being the path to life. Right? You get verses like Psalm 119 where it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What does that mean? Well, back then they didn't have street lights. Can you imagine waking up? Have you ever like been up in the middle of the night and you know that there might be like a clear path for you from your bed to the bathroom? All right, have you ever like gotten up and you're like, I know there's nothing there and I don't want to turn on a light because I don't want to wake up my wife. There you got roommates. I don't want to wake her up. So I'm just going to walk. But lo and behold, somebody in the middle of the night, like, left a shoe there, and you trip, and you crash, and you hit your knee on the wall or something like that, you know, and you're like, ah, you know, and the reality is, is God says, it's like the world is dark, but my word is a lamp to your path, light to your feet to help you walk in a way that's good. But here's the problem, here's the rub. How many of us do that? I mean, how many of us actually hear the golden rule, and we're like, that's good. That's good stuff, Jesus. Like, that's really good stuff. I mean, even a Roman emperor thought it was so good, he carves it in the walls of his kingdom. My point is that we can all sit here and shake our heads and be like, yes, good stuff. I'll journal that one down. I'll put that on a coffee cup or, you know, burn that into a t-shirt or whatever. And people do that or make a Thomas Kincaid painting, which, you know, whatever. I mean, we look at this type of stuff, we're like, it's all good. But my point is that... My point is that we recognize it as good, but we just don't do it. We don't live it. We don't live it. And the reason why is because of sin. We're broken people, living in a broken world, living amongst broken people, who to some degree we have this remnant knowledge of it as being good. I mean, we hear, most of people hear the words of Jesus and like, those are good teachings. But we don't do anything about it. And the Bible's answer to that is because we're powerless to. The reason why we don't is because we're powerless. We don't have the power. Instead, what energy we do have, we cling to our idols. 
we cling to our false gods with all of our heart, with all of our strength, with all of our might, because it's in these false gods that we find our identity, we find our happiness, we find our joy, and part of the purpose of Jesus came, the main purpose in which Jesus came, was not to just merely be a good teacher to tell us nice, pithy statements about how to live, but actually provide the means of setting us free from our idols, of setting us free from our offense before God and removing that and in turn actually gifting us with true life that comes from fellowship with God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. That's why Jesus will say something like this. When you love other people and you treat people in this way, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, you're actually fulfilling the, the law right there. That, that's, that's the way it should live. It's the way people should be. If the world lived like that, we'd have a pretty sweet place, huh? I mean, we, I mean think about it. If everybody actually treated each other the way the golden rule would communicate, we wouldn't have need for like, like ravenous pit bulls or like locks on our doors. You know what I'm talking about? Or car alarms that are really annoying. We wouldn't have any need for any of this stuff. Or find my iPhone. Like, you know that little section on the new iPhone? You're like, find my iPhone, you can go like GPS, locate it. We wouldn't need these things because people aren't going to steal from other people. People aren't going to hurt other people. They're not going to be prone to murder. They're not going to be prone to take advantage. They'll love. But we just don't live that way. So here's what happens. Jesus goes on, and we begin to see some of these things that take place and transpires because we realize really the real problem is in the heart. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts are really are in love more so with the things of this world than God as the ultimate treasure. And as long as we are in that type of relationship, we will never let go of these things and lay a hold of God. It is like a child who is holding on to a rattle and you're like, I gotta get that rattle out of that thing's hand because it's constantly annoying me. It's the best way to get a rattle out of a kid's hand. Give him a piece of candy. I'm not kidding. It actually works. Like if you, a kid's got something and you don't want the kid to have it, if you go and yank it out of the kid's hand, he will scream. So you'll exchange rattles for screeches. All right? A better way, give him something better. Give him something better. And in this essence, that's what the gospel does. Jesus comes and he says, listen, you're holding on to things that actually will bring destruction to you. The miracle of salvation is when Jesus opens our eyes and we see him as being all glorious and as all satisfying and we actually let go. Now we have the power to let go because God has gifted it to us to cling to Jesus. That's what Jesus says. And when you love God and when you value God's treasure, guess what? You begin to value the things that God loves too. And his people. Every one of you were created in the image of God. Every single one of you. God loves you created you in that way. And he has more for your life than just simply holding on to things that are broken. And that's what happens is we begin to let go of those things and we hold on to things that God loves. So now Jesus is going to begin to switch gears here a little bit. As I mentioned, there is a break to some degree between verse 12 and verse 13. Now Jesus is going to basically go on to say in the very next slide, you'll see as we move on, he says in verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now this is basically something which Jesus now begins to sort of, as I already mentioned, bring it home 
in his message, and he's going to give, in essence, four examples of two different types of paths or two different types of people. So the next slide, you'll see some of the examples are two paths. That we'll, that's what we'll look at today. Next week, we'll look at two trees, and these are trees that Jesus uses in the sort of the metaphor that are identified by the types of fruit or the actions or the attitudes of your lives. There's also two different types of confessions, people that claim to know God. They say, I know God, but they really don't know God. And there's other people that don't know God. Uh, two different types of foundations, two different types of lives, lives in which we build, or foundations in which we build our lives on. One, when storms come, will withstand it. Uh, the other will be built on sand, and their lives will be washed away and will be doomed to destruction. So Jesus is going to basically now give us some examples of these things and basically, he wants us to see how serious this is. I want to read you a little passage that I read in a book by a guy named D.A. Carson. Here's what he says. I love how he put this. He says, two ways, and only two. The Sermon on the Mount does not end with lofty thoughts of human goodness sprinkled liberally with naive hope about the inevitability of human progress. It offers two ways, and only two. The one ends in life, good fruit, entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and stability, and the other ends in destruction, bad fruit and fire, exclusion from the kingdom, along with other evildoers, ruination. Solemn thoughts, these, uh, solemn thoughts, these, a man will ignore the weight of the blessing and the curses only at his own eternal peril. The point that he's basically making is this, is everything sort of comes to this head in which Jesus is basically saying, you need to examine your life. You need to take a look at where you're at right now, currently, and where you're headed in this life. Our destiny matters. Where we're headed matters. What's ahead of us matters. you got to understand this. This is where Jesus is going with all this. He could have ended with nice, upbeat, flowery feelings, kind of, again, some little more pithy statements where we feel really good about ourselves. But Jesus recognizes that life, life is a very serious thing. It really is. And he doesn't want us to miss it. Now what I want for you to understand is sometimes, maybe because of the background of church that we came from, or because we read some pretty lousy books that misrepresented God, or because we watched the news and we saw some sort of weird caricature, some psycho dude who claims to be a Christian on Larry King's show. And we're like, that's Christianity. So if that's the way God is, that's really a bummer, right? What I'm trying to say is this is that depending upon what type of perspective you've had about God, some people come to these ideas that really God is a very angry guy. He's pretty much grumpy all the time. And if you rock him the wrong way, he'll shoot down a lightning bolt and wipe you out. That's it. And the reality is, that's sort of the caricature that we make of God. That he's very, very upset, very moody, and he's looking for angles and opportunities to destroy us. When in reality... Jesus comes with the purpose and the intent to give us life. You know, the funny thing is we can look at God. Sometimes people, you talk with people and and you ask them, like, what's your view about God? And they're like, God kind of scares me. Jesus seems pretty cool. There's like this weird disconnect. But what I'm trying to say is this, is that Jesus is the exact same image as God the Father. Everything that you see, everything that you like about Jesus is God, is in God, is the way that God acts. So if you look at it that way, what you have to come to the conclusion and realize is that really, in reality, Jesus 
is actually working very hard at trying to get each one of us to have life that comes from God. It's like a father. Okay, I'm a dad. I got two daughters. I love my daughters. I want the best for my daughters. And if I saw them going on a path that I thought, I knew, based upon experience I had, formerly, if I saw them doing something that I felt was going to lead to their destruction or devastation, out of love, I would do everything that I could to stop them from that path. And I want you to see that that is the picture we get of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Time and time again, it's as if he's basically working hard to get us to see that he really wants us to be in life, to live, because we are image bearers of God, because we have been made in the image of God, because we are broken, because we are prone to wander, we are prone to find ourselves going in a path that we've carved out ourselves that oftentimes is riddled with landmines or all sorts of types of difficulties that will lead us to destruction. It's as if Jesus is trying to say, because I love you, I don't want you to walk down that path that leads to destruction. Because I love you, I don't want you to be a tree that bears bad fruit. Because I love you, I don't want you to build your life upon sand. Because I love you, I don't want you to invest your heart, your commitment, your time, your energies in things that will rust, that will rot, and that somebody can steal. I mean, at the end of the day, if I can just try to make this as clear as I can, Jesus really is just working for our joy. I mean, do you see that? I hope you see that today. I hope if anything you walk away from today, if there's one phrase you walk away from that just like, Echoing in your head, Jesus is working for my joy. Jesus wants my joy to be found in the Father. Jesus came on mission from God to get me back to God. So in God, I would have joy in God. That's what I hope you see today. And that's why it basically causes us to pause and say, examine the path you're on. Examine where you're going Examine the type of tree you are. Examine what's going on. Because he makes the point, and he in essence says, there are two roads, the narrow gate and then the broad gate. In Jerusalem that day, obviously, it was a city wall, and there's all sorts of gates around it. So these people were familiar with gates. And basically, Jesus is trying to make the point. He's like, listen, the gate that is the broadest has the majority of people walking through it. And if you just tend to be somebody that is following the crowd, chances are you will just follow the crowd all the way through that gate and end up on that path. And the problem that Jesus says with that is that that path that's followed by the broad way that goes to the broad gate will ultimately end up and lead towards destruction. Now, I want to pause for a second and look at that word destruction. Kind of an interesting word. It's used several times in the New Testament. It's the word apolia. One of the ways in which it's used is kind of interesting. I want to make sure that you get the full ways in which this word is used. Because sometimes you think destruction, again, you get this. If you hear Jesus and he's got like fire in his eyes, he's like yelling at people and he's pointing people out. He's like, you, destruction. You know, he's like, whoa, me? You know, if that's the picture you get, then I think you might be actually hearing maybe like a 19th century hellfire and brimstone preacher, but maybe not Jesus. I, I want to be careful that we don't superimpose 
other voices over Jesus. So here's, here's the word, apolia. And one of the ways in which this, this word appears, uh, Jesus is at a, someone's house. A lady comes up, her name's Mary. She breaks open this beautiful jar of ointment, pours it all over Jesus' feet, and the house smells beautiful. It's an amazing scenario. And basically Jesus says, this lady loves me because of, she's been forgiven much. Judas Iscariot basically pulls Jesus aside and he's like, why did you let her break open that very expensive perfume? Don't you know that this was apoloia? Wasted. Wasted. In other words, something very costly that was squandered. That, that was Judas's assessment of this scenario. That something very costly was just squandered. So I, I want you to get at least the full orb of the word destruction. I mean, I do believe the word destruction does involve probably everything you can imagine every hellfire and brimstone preacher probably preach. I think that's true. But I think it also carries the connotation that it's just a waste. God didn't create you to be a waste. He didn't give you a heart and a life and a mind and a brain and call you to live here in San Luis to go to school to come to this church, to be a part of this community, to live, to be in the marriage that you're in, to have the kids that you have, to have the job that you have. God did not call you to those things just so that everything would be squandered. My fear for a lot of us is that we're just wasting a lot of good stuff that God had every intention to breathe like the Spirit's breath life into that God could be seen. I'm afraid that a lot of us spend a lot of time because we are so consumed with ourselves and we follow this broad path that we waste so much good that God intends in our lives for his glory. We waste even suffering. We go through difficult times rather than looking to God and calling upon God in the midst of suffering. We just waste it. And that becomes an opportunity to glorify God. Jesus didn't waste the suffering. He didn't waste it. His suffering he used as a means to exalt God. Jesus' life was never a waste. And in reality, if you hear this, tucked into the gospel call, the message, is Jesus' call to you is don't waste your life. Don't live your life for yourself. Don't follow the broad path. It leads to destruction. Trust me. Follow me. Some of you as students, some of you as students, you moved up here. Welcome to the family. We're stoked you guys are here. Hopefully what you'll find here at Calvary Slow, especially in the adults, is you'll find a bunch of mature adults that can live past themselves and live past the fact that maybe there's a lot of young people around them and say, I'm going to go out of my way and say hi to young people and love them. The reality is a lot of you young people that have just come up here, starting to go to Cal Poly, welcome all you freshmen. You guys got choices to make. There are paths that you are going to take. I honestly have been here over almost six, a little over 16 years now. Our church has been going for a little over 15 years now. I have literally watched person after person after person who comes here. Some of them have moms and dads who are like, you know, Junior was brought up in the church. He led worshipers. Junior high group. He's a great kid. Three years later, the kid comes back to me. He's like, dude, what's up? I've slept with a million girls. I got some sort of VD. I'm, I'm just, I'm, my life is destroyed. You took the wrong path, didn't you? Yeah, I did. 
I took the wrong path. And the reality is that Jesus' call is I don't want you to take the wrong path. That leads to destruction. I want to give you life. That's the gospel. That's the message that Jesus comes to announce. And the life that Jesus gives is through the Father. Through relationship with Daddy. The Father. And his point is that that path that everybody's on, that nobody ever really stops or pauses to ask, where am I going? Is the path that will lead to destruction. A life that nobody ever sits out to win. Nobody ever wakes up and they're like, you know what, today... I just want to ruin my life. That's it. That's my highest ambition. I want to listen to country music and just ruin my life. (laughs) You're like, nobody lives like that. Nobody does. And if that's you, if you listen to country music, there is forgiveness in Jesus. He's a very good God. I, I promise you that. Promise you that. It's good. But the point that I want to make is this in summary, is that Jesus really wants our life to be filled with his life that comes through the Father. Jesus was sent from the Father to this earth as a missionary to seek and save those who were lost. That's it. To seek and save those who were lost. To save them, to set them free from the bondage of sin that they find themselves trapped in. To set them free from the offense that sin brings between us and God. The Bible talks about different types of sin. There's sins of commission, sins which we commit, we do, we do things that are bad. But there's also sins in which we omit to do, things that we should do, that we know are right, but we don't do. I think even within sins of commission, Jesus comes not only to save the chiefest of evildoers, right? People that are really bad. And Christian church is really good at giving this laundry list of all the bad stuff, right? But do you know that some of the worst sinners are the self-righteous, the religiously arrogant? Some of the worst sinners. They're the ones that actually look at everybody else and despise everybody else. They look at their lives and think, I'm cool with God. Everybody else is messed up. Everybody else, you know, sleeps around and has drugs or whatever. I mean, they have this laundry list where they compare everything by. That's sin. That's pride. It's the worst sin of all. Jesus comes to save that. And Jesus' whole point in summary and finish in verse 14 says the gate is narrow the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few he makes the point that this gate is narrow it's way it's hard it's difficult it's a hard road but the reality is is that even though it's hard jesus in luke uh luke's account of this actually says strive to enter into that narrow gate the word strive we get the english word agonize to agonize to get into that to stay into that because the reality is, there will be the temptations that once you start following God, it will be hard. It will be hard. It will be difficult. Sometimes people get disillusioned. They're like, you know, I thought that when I came to know Jesus, life was going to be cool. Uh, that's what some dude on television with slick hair told me was going to happen. I'm sorry you were lied to. I, I mean, honestly, I don't know how else to put it. The life that Jesus calls us to is hard. It will be difficult. But... There is a promise of great reward that comes from the Father. There is the promise of God's strength in the midst of it. There's the promise that God will be with you 
He may not take you out of your pain. He may not always heal you from suffering. He may not always take away the hard feelings of being rejected by people or people despising you. He may not. But he promises to be with you in the same way that God was with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. That way, though harder, is the way that Paul would put it this way in summary. For I know that the suffering that I presently go through is not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will one day be revealed in Christ. I don't know how to put it other than to say that the life that Jesus calls us to is a tough life. It's hard. It's, it's not easy. I wish I could promise you it would be. I wish I could tell you, trust Jesus. You're going to have money in your wallet. You're going to drop 15 pounds. You're going to get a new house. Maybe even a new car with little spinners on your rims. Everything will be cool. All right? You'll get good grades. You'll have a wife that looks really pretty. Everything will be great for you. I wish I can promise you that. It's totally not true. Because quite to the opposite, people who trusted Jesus in the first century, in the time when this was written, some died. Some were kicked out of their households. Some lost their community. Some became people that were mocked and shunned and defamed. But they held true to the same promise that Jesus held true to as he was on this earth. That God is great. God is the gospel. God is the good news. And the treasure of our lives is God. God does not fade away. God is incorruptible. God will never perish. God will never die. God will never go away. Moths will never eat God. Rust will never destroy God. God is incorruptible, all-powerful, and will never move. And that is the gospel that Jesus says. And you can have that. And it's better than everything we put our hands to in this life that will be destroyed. That is the narrow way that Jesus says, make sure, make sure that you're on that path. We're going to respond right now. We're going to pray. I'm going to, we're going to worship. Uh, we're going to sing. Um, sometimes people are like, why do, why do we sing? We sing, really? Because people who have hope and people who love sing, right? Turn on the radio. Most songs have only a couple themes, unless it's country. <laughs> Most songs have to do with like love. We sing songs to Jesus because we love Jesus. We love Jesus. We have hope in Jesus, through Jesus, because God's good. So we're going to sing to God. We're going to give our tithes and our offerings to God. If you're one of our guests, please don't feel any obligation to give. If you want to give, give joyfully because you love Jesus. You want to be on mission. And then when we're done, we're going to pray that God's power and strength would be upon us. Because really at the end of the day, we want to be missionaries like Jesus was a missionary. Jesus came from the Father into our world to tell us about how great God is. Just before Jesus ascended to the Father, he said to his followers, he says, I send you out into the world to go be missionaries, to go tell the world how great my Father is, to announce to them that there's freedom. They don't have to hold on to corruptible things, things that will break, things that will fade away. They don't have to. They can be set free from those things. And the offense between them and God can be wiped out. We want to be missionaries like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you've given to us. We worship you even right now.